to you today about this heavyweight topic in the Christian world. The elect of God. This is a massive topic. And I, may I say that this is also one of those topics that split churches. People can't sit down and discuss this topic. Because there's a few schools, and I'll open that up for you today. So we're going to the Word this morning, and we study as we do in 1 Peter. We're going to still looking at verse 1 and 2, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. I'll tell you what, I thought we might be busy for two or three months on the book of Peter, but I don't think so. There's so many things, so many jewels in the start of this letter, that I think it's only it's going to take us two or three months to get through the first ten verses. Yes? <laughs> it is so deep, it is so rich, and you say, so what? I want to say to you, yes what? Because it will build your Christian life. You see, when you got saved, that's not where it all stops. You and I need to grow in the Word. These topics, I mean, do you know about the elect of God? Have you looked into this? Or are you, or are you saying, oh, it's one of those difficult things that people just, uh, you know, they quarrel about this thing. They, they just have a lot of difficulties. around. I'm not going to look into that. No, we have to. And this is one of those. So I'm going to talk to you about this. So I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I want to get into it straight away. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We saw last week, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. This is the whom he sent it to in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Then he says in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We heard John praying it over the table this morning. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And as I said last week, this is how it looks in his day. Israel is down here. He most probably was in Babylonia, that's where he wrote this letter from. A man, maybe by the name of Sulphanus, took this letter and he went to all the churches in Pontus, which is in our scripture verse there, in Galatia, this whole region here, Cappadocia, and in Asia. We know that there were a lot of churches there. And he took the letter of Peter to these churches. Excitedly they received this letter. And he calls them here the pilgrims of the dispersion. The pilgrims of the dispersions into all of these areas. They were pushed out of their country, out of their own place. And we saw last week this, that the reason the letter was written is to comfort Christians who because of their situation are no longer accepted in their cultural world. This is why they were pushed out, away from their families, away from their friends. We haven't experienced that. On a social level, we experience it in our world. But they experienced it physically. What if somebody knock on your door tonight and ask you, prompt out, are you a Christian? And you say yes, and they put you into a wagon and they take you away to another country. We don't want you Christians in this country. This is similar to what these people had to run away and flee for their lives for what they believed in. This is the reason this letter was written to them. For us, 
it's a social thing. People don't want to socialize with you because you're a Christian. Because you don't do the things they do. And you know what we do when that happens? We go, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. Go and ask it to these people. If it's hard to be a Christian. Go ask them. And maybe if you hear what they say, your view of it will change. Oh, I'm socially depressed. I don't even knew there's a word like that. So this is what happened to them. And I gave you my Picasso last week, which shows to you what we are living in. In that one there, the Word of God was the center of society. It was the center of culture. And as I said last week, culture wrapped itself around the Word of God. And the Word of God determined the morals of life. This is how we grew up. Well, anyway, this is how I grew up. Where everything was around the Word of God. And the Word of God determined the culture. The Word of God influenced the culture. And we had Bible in schools. We had prayer in schools. Abortion was a sin. It wasn't done. It was illegal. Homosexuality was illegal in some countries. It's because culture looked to the Word of God. And the Word of God determined culture. And alarmingly, now we've moved into the second part of my Picasso painting there. And that is where culture has now moved into that bedrock place. And it pushed the Word of God out. And now culture determines, determines, and changes the Word of God to be acceptable in culture. This is what we're living in. This is why they've taken praying and Bible and schools out of schools. This is why abortion is now legalized. This is no new news. It happened in their day as well. And they had to run away. They had to flee from their friends, from their family, from their comfort lives. They lost their jobs as CEOs of their companies, as big, you know, corporates of their companies, as workers in their companies. They lost their income, and they had to flee with their whole families to protect them to these places. They were dispersed all over. And you remember I said last week as well that it is, it is a contrast between what they had been in the culture and what they now have become because of their obedience in Christ. That happened to you as well, did it? It happened to me. I had been with the guys, and they all loved me for who I was and is. You know, I'm, I, I want to, you know, throw my tenses around here. Eh? It's the way I is. No, it's the way I was. Okay, and I was that way back in the day. But you see, I had become something else in Christ. And when I became something in Christ, I was no more accepted in that culture. And culture kicked me out socially. I've lost a lot of friends, but I gained so much more. This is the background. This is the foundation that's already laid. Now, Peter says now, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at the authority. Follow the line of the authority here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And last week I explained to you who an apostle is. He was a true apostle of whom? Of Jesus Christ. The fact that he says of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave him the authority to be an apostle. It's not, listen to me, listen to me. No man today has got that authority to lay hands on another man to make him an apostle. There ain't no authority like that anymore. I don't care who you are, I don't care who you follow, I'm just telling you how it is straightforward out of the Word of God. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And now he says, he writes it to the pilgrims 
of the dispersion, and I want to explain this to you. When he says pilgrims, he comes from the word parapodimos. Parapodimos, that's a Greek word. And it means to be an alien or a foreign resident. A foreign resident. When I say alien, it's not what the people are looking into the sky, what's going to come down and visit us. It's not aliens. It's not Hollywood's aliens. Alien here means you're a foreigner. These people were pushed into lands where they are foreigners. Physically. I want to say, brother and sister, this is written to you and me because you and I are pilgrims in this land as well. In this world, you and I are pilgrims. We are not citizens of this world anymore. And and, and listen to me. If I preach this and it comes out in the public domain, they will say that that guy is going off his blockers. He's getting crazy. Listen to him. But it's true according to the word. It's true. Listen, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Paul writes the following. He says, for our citizenship. Who knows what is citizenship? Ask me. I'm a South African born Kiwi. I know all about it. Our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in Australia. It's not in New Zealand. It's not where you came from. I love it. I love all of the different cultures in this room. I love all of the different accents in this room. I love all of the different languages in this room. And I pray. And you know what's so wonderful? When I get to heaven, I'm going to know them all. <laughs> that's my doctrine, by the way. Don't take me on on that, but that's it. But here is the thing. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. I find such a big disconnect between Christians today. They don't eagerly wait for the Savior anymore to take them to that, new, that country. He says, I eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to the glorious body. Praise the Lord. Are you waiting for that? Are you waiting for it? I've got so sore feet. I'm waiting for it. Into that glorious body, no more pain, no more cry, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Just scripture. It's all I'm giving you. John 17, verse 16, Jesus Christ Himself prays for the disciples at that point with Him. But He also prays into the future for you and me. These words He says, He says, they, the disciples, they, the Christians at Karam Downs, they, the Christians at Pontus Galatia, they, those, yes, them, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, yes, brother and sister, we are also pilgrims. Can you see that? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That was Jim Reeves who sang that, and I can't do it like him, but that's beautiful words, isn't it? This world ain't my home. I'm just passing through. How is it then that some things in the world grab so much hold of you that you don't want to leave them? You go, I'm passing through, but I'm bringing all this rubbish stuff with me that moth can destroy and rust can eat up. But our treasure is in heaven, brother and sister, where the power of God protects it. So he talks about pilgrims of the dispersion. You see the dispersion there? It comes from the Greek word diaspora, diaspora. 
Uh, and we know that he talks about this in James chapter 1, verse 1. This, in fact, is a Hebrew concept that they are using in the New Testament. A Hebrew concept. You remember in the Old Testament when these nations invaded Israel? What did they do? Nebuchadnezzar, they took these Jews out of their lands, out of their countries, and took them with them, didn't they? That was the diaspora of the Jewish nation. We see that tribes were divided up. I mean, even today, some people are foolishly looking for the lost ten tribes. There's no lost tribes. God knows where they are, and they are found. (laughs) You don't have to waste your time on that. Study your Bible. But you see, this is the diaspora. They were dispersed right over, taken out. And here, these men use these words in the New Testament to give us an idea, or the people who would listen to that, an idea what they are meaning. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James writes this. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Does it mean he only wrote this to the Jews? Is the Bible written to the Jews? Tell me. Yes, it is. But it's also written to you and me, who's Gentiles. But he, uh, he uses that old uh, uh, concept or in Hebrew. In John 7, 36, uh, 35, then the Jews said among themselves, you, you remember when Jesus said to them he's going to go away? He was talking about dying. And they couldn't understand this. He couldn't hit them. And they say, they say amongst themselves, the Jews, his own people, they say, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? See, this is the diaspora. They were dispersed amongst the Greeks, the Gentiles. It was a technical term for the Jews who lived outside of Palestine. A technical term, which they use now for the Christians. Because over this world... There's a diaspora of children of God. We are dispersed all over. In your workplace, some of you don't even know there's a person working there who is also a Christian. How don't you know? Because you haven't asked. And he hasn't asked. You see, because people are afraid these days. Why? Why why are people afraid to proclaim the Christianity? Because of the culture that changed. This is why people are afraid. This is why Christians are afraid. It's a price to pay. Culture, if you're going to go in with the Word of God into culture, what are they going to do? Look at my arrows. They're going to push you out. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your pension. You're going to lose your... I've got so much to lose. And some people play it up and go, I've got too much to lose. I just keep quiet. And Satan is quieting so many voices through fear. And he is using culture to dawn that fear upon people's hearts. And you and I are living in it. This is the world we are living in. So he talks about these people. I want to hurry on because we've got much to go. Now he says there, He writes to the elect, you see this? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of of the Spirit. He says the apostle with the authority is God. He writes to the elect according to the foreknowledge. Now I've got a question this morning that I want to ask. How did Peter know who the elect is? 
Good question, isn't it? How did he know? He sent this letter out into those areas to the elect, he says. But how would he know? Is there a, is there a physical sign? Do you see Christians walking around with a sea on their foreheads? Well, there's some people who proclaim you, there, there's an invisible sea and you, can, you can't see it, but certain people can see it. That's a lot of nonsense and rubbish. How do we know? How do we know who the elect is? And this is a question that baffles so many people today. So many people. We find here in uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 16 an idea that we can have of knowing who the elect is. It's, it's an indication to us. When Jesus himself says in verse 16, Matthew seven sixteen, you will know them by their fruits. Yes? You will know them by their fruits. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You remember our service that we had last year. This was the scripture verses. Every tree, Jesus says, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now listen, verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but who does the will of my Father in heaven? How will we know them? By their fruits. How they look, how they react. But we still can't see their hearts, can we? Come on, face it, there's so many people in this room who walk through these doors this morning. Can you honestly walk up to each one of them and tell me what is the content of every person in this place's heart. You can't. You just can't because it's not given to you. So how would Peter know? How would we know? Jesus said we will see them by their fruit. And this is how we will know them. But you know what? There's a little bit of a danger in this as well. Because I've seen it over the years that a lot of people come into churches and they worship by association. People change by association. We've seen it all over. The psychologists can tell you, you take somebody out of their culture and put him into another culture and the culture influences that person and it will change his habits. The same thing is happening in churches today. You take somebody out of the culture of the world, you bring them into the church, you change around them, and they change because of the changes around them. This is where you get people like Rick Warren. They bring the culture of the world into the church, they bring a few people in there, they change it around. These people act a little bit better and everybody goes, wow, they got saved. I want to say to you, they changed because of association. We saw that with Lydia when we looked at that last week. You remember Lydia was praying down at the river. What did they do? The Bible says there specifically, she worshipped God. But then after, after that passage, it says that when Paul spoke to her, what happened? God opened up what? Her heart. And then she took it in. So she worshipped before, listen to this, before he opened up her heart. Uh, there's a lot of people in churches today who are worshipping and they are changing because of association. And there's a lot of videos over the YouTube who says that God goes into an area, you know, all of these bars and everything closed down, and they say, oh, it's a revival from God. No, no, it's an association. 
How do we know that? Because we just look at the fruit. Because we cannot know the intent of the heart. That's what the Word of God teaches. So Jesus says, it's by their fruit you will know them. By their fruit. And I want to give you a classic example out of the Word of God. Take, for instance, this passage in Acts, chapter 8, verse 9. Now, I'm going to read to you the narrative, and I'm going to explain. He says in Acts, chapter 8, verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon. Now, what happened in this particular case? Philip went around, and he preached the gospel of God. And people came to the Lord. They were saved. Not by association. They really were saved from the inside out. God changed their hearts. God changed their hearts. Not they. God changed their hearts. This is how it works when God saves a soul. He says, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is a great power of God. Will you agree with me right now that this was a very popular man in his area? Because it says, all knew Simon the Great. All knew him. He was a very popular man. If you walk down the streets there and you say, do you know Simon the Great? Oh, yeah. And what did they say about him? They say, this is a great power of God. Why? Because of the signs he did. Everybody knew him. Now in verse 11 it says, And they heeded him because he had astonished them with sorceries for a long time. But when, sharp contrast, they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then, listen to this now, Then Simon himself, oh, this great power of God, Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. I can just imagine how the rumor mill ran through that whole region. Can you believe it, Glenn? Simon came to Christ. I can see how many churches would have put him on a poster. Say, wow, God is with this church, man. He's moving here. There's a revival here. Even, even Simon the Great came to Christ. Wow, I want to go to that church. The power of God is there. Who would have believed that a sorcerer would come to Christ? Would you say that's a good thing? Of course. Massive, fantastic. Hey, Philip, great work, man. High fives. That man came to Christ. That sorcerer came to Christ. And everybody would agree and everybody would rejoice. I mean, let's take it. Let's go and find a witch in Melbourne. This this is how it was, witchcraft. Sorcery is witchcraft. Let's go and find a witch in Melbourne, okay? And we start ministering the word of God to that witch. And that witch give her heart or his heart to the Lord. Will we rejoice? Of course we will. Let's not romanticize this whole thing. This is a great story, I would say. But let's look further. In verse 14, he says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, you see, listen, not the power or anything or any outpourings, the word of God. That is the power of God. 
Paul writes it himself. He says the gospel is the power of God. The word is the power of God. When they heard it, they sent who? Peter and John to them. The very man whose letter we are studying right now, who's walking in the authority of God, they sent him and John, another apostle, to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive what? The Holy Spirit. They might receive the Holy Spirit. And it was successful. I'm not saying Philip's ministry wasn't successful. But when he preached it, people came to the Lord. The word was really there. But when they came, and look, let me just throw it in here. It's a whole different, and I'm not going to go on a rabbit trail here. You know, this thing about notion about laying on hands and people like they Benny Hinds of the world do that. That's, what I'm, well, that's not what this is, okay? Let me just correct it for you there. But these people came out. They prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Now look at this now. In Acts 8 verse 18, he says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given them, he offered them money. Wow. I never had that power. I want that power. Hey, Peter, John, let me flip a coin here out of my pocket, man. Let's see how much, how much $50 notes I've got on my... Let me buy that. I want you to see something here now. Saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this morning, there are a lot of charlatans in the world right now in churches who operate in the Spirit. And I can name them for you. They're in the gospel of Christ for money. And I hope somewhere my voice will come to them. But you know what? They will laugh me off. Because their hearts are so hardened. But here we go. This guy says, hey, I need that power, man. Why? How much can I pay you guys for this? That I may lay my hands and people receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, now notice now very carefully. Because, you know, just last week we put this guy on a pedestal and we said, Hey, look, the great power of God came to Christ and everybody rejoiced. Now Peter comes into that whole little circle there and see what he does. He look him in the eye, that's my words, I didn't change the Bible, but look at this. Verse 20 says, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Some churches will quiet Peter down today. They will say, no, Peter, don't say it to him, man. He throws a lot of tithes into our church. Don't say that to him. Don't offend him. Isn't that right? It's so quiet in here, but it's true. You see, Peter wasn't after his money. He wasn't a money preacher. Peter wasn't after his gifts. Oh, we, got, we need to have that guy. You know, he was good in what he was doing as sorcery. We believe he had power. God saved him out of that. Now we're going to use him in our church as, as that power. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. Here he says to him, your money perish with you. Now one would say at that point in time, Peter, that's a little bit impolite, but okay, we can live with that. But he continues on. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How did Peter know the heart of the man? How did Peter know the heart of the man? 
You know, he saw his fruits. I get that. And we all could have seen his fruits. But I want to put it to you this way. If it was his fruits, why didn't Philip do something about it? Because wait a minute, Philip preached to him. Philip, the gospel was shared. Philip baptized him, didn't he? Didn't he? But why couldn't Philip then see his heart? Why didn't Philip see all of these signs? It was only when the apostle came. Why? It's because God gave him the power to be knowing the intent of a man's heart. The apostles had that. He says it to him. And then he turns in verse 22. He says, Repent therefore of your wickedness and pray to God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he goes one step further. He says, For I see that you are poisoned with by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That's not how you build a church. That's not how we get all of these empty chairs full, do you? Offending people. You know what they do these days? They send a survey through a suburb and they say, how would you like to be church? How would you like church? If we put something together that fits your needs, you see the culture, would you come? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, we don't want preaching of sin. We don't want a communion table because it talks about the blood of Christ. We don't, if, if you don't put these five things in, we will come to your church. You know what they do? They build the churches like that on the power of sorcery. And they take money and they get filthy rich. I'm not jealous of that because I don't want their money because they will give an account for every single penny that they receive from these people and how they spend it. Go and read your Bible in James. But can you see now that here's a man who came in and through association and worship, this guy changed. And everybody fell for it. Hey, Peter, this great power of God. Whoa! But when the apostles walk in, they saw right through him. And you know what? They spoke not only to his actions. They could have just said, no, 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 money won't do it, man. Let's show you. Let's take you on board. Let's put you in a, in a five-week uh, training module. You come with us. You can't lay your hands like that on people. You need to put it with an angle. Or maybe you put it like this. If you put it like this, the power of God works through these ways. Look, I'm making a joke out of it, but it's so true. It's sad. It is true. It is so true. And they are scarletons who rob people's money and thousands flock to them. They won't come here. They won't stand the fire of God here. They won't. And you know what? If they come in here, I don't want them to come in here and change this because we're going to stand on the Word of God and they will have to change. And if they don't change here, let it be no one day. Listen to me. One day they will bow their knees and accept that Jesus is Lord. So, can you see now, when he writes to the elect, how could he have known? How do we know? We see the fruit, that's what we've got. So, as we continue now on to the elect of God, let's talk about the elect of God. Now, I want to make a disclaimer right now, okay? I've even put it on the board for you to see. This is my disclaimer. I am by far not the final word in this matter. I'm not standing in front of you and say what I'm going to preach to you about the elect is the final authoritative word. No, no, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you through the Scriptures and test what I'm preaching to you in the next 20 minutes, if it's true or not. And the choice is why you, whether you accept it, don't take my word. Don't say because of Pastor John says so, it's so. Then you're in error. And I will be in error if I say you need to. My second disclaimer is, nor am I claiming to have a divine insight or tertiary degrees on this subject. Why do I give you those two disclaimers? Because there's people who claim that, and I'm not one of those. Have you got my disclaimer? 
Okay. If you want me, I can put it into your note and I can sign to it and make it authentic, okay? So, we're talking about the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So, there's generally two schools here. Two schools of thought. The one which people would have known is Calvinism. It's by a man of Calvin, okay? And the second, which is against, well, I wouldn't say against it, but it's similar to it, is Arminianism. Now, uh, where Calvinism is straightforward, we all know John Calvin, and we know the work that he's done. There was also a man by Jacobus, Arminius, and they all call it Arminianism. And this man lived in the 15th century when he noted down these things, and let me just say, according to his understanding. That's the important part of this phrase. And when I talk about John Calvin, may I also add it to him, according to his understanding. I don't know whether they had disclaimers back in the day, but I certainly have one. So, Calvinism is on five general points. First of all, they say they believe in total depravity. Total depravity. Man was so lost that nothing in man can be brought to God to make him righteous before God. Totally, totally depraved. And it only depends on the grace and the mercy of God to save man. Okay, so that's what it says. Whereas the Armenia says they believe in partial depravity. Now let me say some Calvinists believe in a four point, some Armenians believe in a four point, some believe in five. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not taking these people, I'm not discussing it in depth. I give you just a bird's eye view of these people's beliefs. So the Armenians say partial depravity is that man didn't fall totally. Man wasn't totally bad. Within man there was still something holding good so that someday he's going to come to God and say, Lord, I come to you, please save me. That's a partial depravity. So there's still some good in man. Calvinists believe in an unconditional election. Unconditional. No conditions. God is the determining factor in this. No conditions placed before you. God saves the way he saves. Whilst the Armenians say there's a conditional election. God just, you know, chose some and chose not, others not. And then limited atonement. Limited atonement means that God only died on the cross for some, not for the whole world. Whilst when you talk to the Armenians, they'll say unlimited atonement. And then what about irresistible grace? The Calvinist means there's irresistible grace, whilst Arminius believe that you can resist the grace of God. And Calvinists say in the fifth point that the perseverance of saints, so once saved, always saved, or that God keeps you and you can't be lost, whilst the Arminians say that there's a conditional salvation, so you need to work really hard to stay saved. So these are the points and Brothers and sisters, it's up for you if you want to go deeper into those and study them and look into that. Where I'm looking at this from an angle, and you're thinking I'm going to say that I'm falling into one of these categories now. What I want to say this morning is both of these views is man's understanding of God's election. Both of them are. I don't find anywhere in Scripture that Paul says, I'm a Calvinist. Have you? I'll pay you $10 million if you bring me that Scripture verse. First of all, I haven't got that money, but secondly, I'm safe. <laughs> I find no way that Peter came around when he talked about this election and said, I'm an Armenianist. These are man's understanding. 
Man, coming to the Word of God, trying to find out how does God's election work. And now let me say to you, unfortunately, if I stand here this morning and I say to you, brothers and sisters, I declare that we as a church follow Calvinism, people will leave the church. And other churches who believe Arminianism do not want to reach out a hand of fellowship to us because we stand in Calvinism. If similarly I say this morning, we believe in Arminianism, then we cut off all of the Calvinists. How ludicrous is that? It doesn't work that way. I want to stand on the Word of God this morning. Have I got your permission? I wasn't going to take it anyway. That's what I was going to do. So, this is man's understanding of how God's election works. What I am standing on, what I'm standing on this morning, and what I've been doing all my life, and what I will continue to do, is written in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Where is the apostles' doctrine? Right there. Right there. So do not try to classify me as a Calvinist. Do not try to classify me as an Arminianist. Classify me as a Christ follower who teaches the doctrines of the apostles. Classify me for that. Now, why do I say that? Because I can tell you, I'm looking at both those sides, and there's things there that make sense on Calvinism side, and there's things that make sense on Arminianism side. For me, it's interwoven. How God has allowed His deep secrets to be coming out into man's area. And it is our understanding of that. Now, after I've disappointed you now, that's fine. Let's continue on. Because now I want to go on then. He says then, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You can say, well, preacher, now that you've taken that stance, where do you go from here? Because still there is this election that we need to understand. Let me give you an understanding which I believe is out of the Word of God. And, all, and remember, you've got my disclaimer, okay? This is it. It's hell then. Now we look at Romans chapter 11 verse 33 as a start. I love to start with this verse. What does it say? It says, oh, do you see that word? That is such a big theological word. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a massive theological word. No, it's not. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul writes down, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Can you see? The wisdom and the knowledge of God. Yes, what are we doing, my brother? When we read the Bible, what are we doing? We're gaining knowledge of God. And in James, he says, if you lack wisdom, where do you get it from? From Calvin, from Jacobus Arminius. No, where do you gain it from? From God. Now Paul comes to this all, and he, all he can say is, Oh, whoa, I, I don't see this, uh, oh, dropping shoulders. Oh, no, no. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How, listen to this now, how unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways past finding out. How unsearchable. Can you see the word there? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who? Can anybody tell me? We've got the mind of God here. Again, I go back to my previous verse. If you want to ask me, where do you stand? I'm going to teach the doctrines of the apostles. Where did they get that doctrine? From Jesus Christ himself. 
Himself. Who gave them power? Jesus Christ Himself. I'm in a good place. I'm in a good place. And he says, oh, who can know the mind of God? Or who has become his counselor? Anybody here who can put up their hand? Oh, I know a lot of preachers today who wants to counsel God, man. You were wrong. (laughs) You were wrong. Because we are living in this culture. You didn't live in this culture. You lived back in the day where there was no cards and iPads and cell phones and smart watches and stuff. You live in that time. We live now. Let, Let us tell you how it works. He ain't working that way. Who can be God's counselor? No one. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, I am so excited right now. I just got to contain myself. Because look at that verse. He says, for him, through him, to him are all things. All things. Even the election. Now let's go into them. How then? There's two indications in the book of Romans how the election works. It says, first of all, oh, the depth, you see? Uh, sorry, I've, I've doubled up a page here. Look at that. You will forgive me, will you? I've doubled the page. He says here, the election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, we have to look at these words and break them up. The first word is foreknowledge. What does it mean, foreknowledge, in the way that Peter uses this? It comes from the Greek word prognosis. Who knows this word term? That's where we get your English word from. You go to the doctor and he gives you a prognosis. What does the prognosis mean? It means before knowledge. Pro, gnosis, before knowledge. It's to know something beforehand, before anybody else knows it. And this is what it is. Second is the word elect. Now, there's two examples of this word in our book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul writes again, he says, For whom he foreknew, who foreknew them? God did. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So he knew, like my brother prayed over the table, he knew before you were even born. He knew that. But he also knew how you were going to react. But it's not because he knew that that he chose you. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. You see, some, some people in the Armenian side say this. They say, God had the, the power to look right into your life, right through to the end of your life. And somewhere he saw in that year, you're going to give your heart to him and you're going to come to him. And because he saw that, he now foreknew that and this is why he chose you. That's wrong. Why? Because the choice then lies with you and not with God. Now again, I'm not taking on Arminianism here. This is one of those things which I've thought through, and wait a minute, then the choice is with me. But for, for knowledge and election lies totally with God. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. Now he says, when this happened, when God knew this, what did he do? He conformed to the image of his son that he might be the first bongabons, many brethren, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The key for me in this passage is that for whom it's about people. Those he knew he did these things to. That's the key. Now let me give you an example of how God works. What is God's basis of election? And this is the point I want to make, that we can't, 
We can't outthink God in this area. We just can't. There's a classic example. And we'll finish with this this morning. In Romans chapter 9 verse 10, Paul again writes, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, oh how classic, is, it just came to me when I read it. By one man, isn't it? Okay, I won't go into that. I'll waste time. And also by, where Rebecca also conceived children by one man for our forefather Isaac. Though, listen to this now, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on, God, injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, listen, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or extortion, but on God who has mercy. Is that clear? I mean, it is so clear that a young child can understand that. I don't even have to expound that. I don't even have to open up. But let me just say this. Was Esau a bad man? Come on, you know your Bible. Was he bad? Of course. We read in, in Hebrews while they talk about how bad man he was. Go and read the actual account of him when he was born and, and what he did. Was, was he good? Was he anything good in him? What about Jacob? Was he bad? Well, even his name means deceiver. Hello? Did he deceive? Yes, he did. Is that bad? Of course it's bad. So Esau wasn't good. Jacob wasn't good. Yet God chose Jacob. Why? Can you tell me why? Paul couldn't. So if you want to claim this morning that you have got more insight as the Apostle Paul then I would like to hear it. But when you bring it to me, please tell me what Paul and Peter and James and John and these men said about it. This man was inspired by God to write these words. There's no indication in any of these words somewhere, because you see, we look at what I told you before. We look at fruit, don't we? You shall know them by their fruit. Show me some just small thing of Jacob so that we can say, yeah, that's it. It's because of that that God chose him. But we cannot. This is the point that Paul is making. So what is the thing about election? Friend, I cannot walk around and say to you who's elect and who's not. That's the error people are doing. But I see a lot of people coming in and through worship and association they are changed. And then what happened? What happened? Because it didn't happen from the inside out, because they were not renewed in, the, in their minds, as it says in Romans chapter 12, association can change just like that. Why? You take that same person out of that group, you put it in another group, and that group will influence it again. It is when God saves you from the inside out, when you take you out, and you can put you in any situation, that you will still carry the fruit of Christ. Take my peach tree, for instance. I walked past it the other day, and he called me over. 
to say, John, come over here. I walk under the tree and I go, what strange thing? Throw a tree talks to me. I used to walk up to it and I go, what, what can I help you with? He goes, man, I'm struggling. I said, why? Oh, I'm struggling to push this through fruit out, man. I'm so struggling to make peaches. Well, the problem is it's your fruit. You need to give me peaches. If you ain't give me peaches, I'm going to cut you off. Plant another one. But I'm trying so hard. I just can't get these peaches out. And every time I push it out, it is a prickly pear that comes out. Well, we've got a problem here now. What's the problem, John? Well, I planted you to have peaches, not prickly pears. Because a prickly pear, you know, it, it stings and there's little thorns in it. You know, you've got to take it and open it up and all. Yeah, I just want to go and reach out, take the fruit. How does the fruit develop on a tree? It is the DNA of the tree. You see, the tree don't have to try to bring forth a fruit. All the tree needs to go is it goes its roots into the ground, and I water the tree around it. I water it. And what happens? All that, all that moist coming to it, and because of its nature that it is, it goes and it grows. The fruit happens by itself. By the way, I didn't have a talk with my tree, okay? I just want to say there. Some person is going to take this and go, this guy, I say he's got... No, no. This is just to make a point here. The tree... The tree is not trying to make the fruit. The fruit just happens. Are you with me now? Take a Christian, for instance. I was walking down the other day, Andre. The Christian calls me and says, Hey, John, come over here. What, what's going on? He says, Oh, man, I'm struggling so hard to push out this fruit. You get where I'm going? I'm reading Galatians chapter 5, and yeah, man, it's so hard to be a Christian. It's so tough to push out these fruits. Well, what are you telling me? You're telling me that your DNA hasn't been changed into Christian. Are you with me now? You are telling me that you were associated around you with Christians and you tried to be like them. Friends, when God elects you, which He did before the foundation, I believe that. When He elects you, and, and He changes your DNA into the... And you know what? He changes you into the image of... You don't have to try to make fruit like a Christian. It comes naturally. Are you with me? Okay, so let's finish off. Who will know then? Who will know that you are elected? Now, I know that I asked in the beginning, how did Peter know? So Peter sends this letter out to the elect by the foreknowledge of God. He sends it out to them. But there is somebody who will know that you're elected. We haven't got the apostles here anymore, do we? But we have the Holy Spirit here, do we? How wonderful is that? I thank God that Peter is not still alive. You can imagine, you wouldn't be able to see Peter. You had to make an appointment with him. I see some don't get it. There's a church called the Roman Catholic who believes that, Peter, that the Pope is still operating in the authority of Peter. That's a lie. It's rubbish. That's a sign for us to show that this is not how it works. The apostles are the foundation. They've laid the foundation with the, with the prophets and with Christ. Now we have the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you again, who will know that you are elected? Well, there's only two who will know. God knows. Why? Because he says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let's stay with the things we know God gives us and leave the unknown over to him. He knows. 
He knows who are elected. And secondly, who will know also? You will. You will know it. Because it says in Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit Himself. What Spirit is that? It's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit Himself. No one else. I I see it so many times. And friends, I've been in these churches. I've been there. I've done it myself. Out of ignorance. They say a five-minute prayer. People come down. They say say after me these words. Okay. Once they stand up, immediately the person says, Now you are saved. What authority has he got? What, what does he know happened in that person's heart? What? You tell me what. Look, I've got no problem with, with altar calls. I, I will do it. I will do it in this church. But I will call you out for prayer for your life. The salvation of your soul lies solely in the hands of God. All I can do is preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. When he spoke to his disciples, he said to him, go and do what? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Build theories around election? No, no. Preach the gospel. Leave that over to God. He knows his elect, and his elect knows him. You, know, you want to know how I know that? Because Jesus said, he said to them, in this city I've got many sheep, and the sheep hears his. Yes. And God adds to the church, my brother. God adds to the church. And here he says it there, he says, we are children, the spirit bears with my spirit, that, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. You see, the very essence of John, when he wrote the gospel, he says there in, in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, I, I believe he says, these things I've written you so that you may know that you are saved. And again, in the letters which we studied just last year, he says there, these things I, we write that your joy may be full and that you may know there's two who knows the elect of God. It is not my work as a pastor to try to find out who's the elect of God. It's not my work. You know what is the, the danger of trying to find out who's the elect of God? Because then I want to usurp authority over you. And somehow, woo, I don't know who, gives me the power. And I've seen it so many times. People walk in and I go, oh, I can see things you can't see. That is to assert that a power over your life. And you know what the Bible calls it? It calls it Nicotheleans. Go and read the Bible in the book of Revelation. Nicotheleans is one thing that God hates. And that means to have power over people. I have no power over you. You are free to go. I have no power over your children. None. My authority, listen to me, my authority is only a sub right now when I preach this, and, and it's not even my authority. It is a delegated authority of the Word of God. This is why any one of you people can come up here, stand behind the pulpit, open up the Word of God, and preach it in spirit and truth. And we have to listen. Now, you're not going to hear this sermon in a lot of churches because I tell you, this empties churches because people are looking for the feel-good factor. We want to see the elect and we want to be part of the elect and make our own little click and push the rest out. And I see that. Listen to me. I'm just on fire now. I see this happening. Why? Because we've got groups now. We the Calvinists. We the Armenists. We the Lutheran. We the Baptists. We this. We that. We this. And there's no hands of fellowship between any one of these groups. Yet the Bible says they will be one. Why not? Friends, I'm not standing in any camp. 
no camp but the doctrine of the apostles. That's what I will stand on. And that's what I will preach. Whether, whether it's, where, where, look, listen to me honestly. I do not have to impress any person. I don't have to make friends with anybody preaching the gospel. I didn't see Paul going in and say, how, many, how to make best friends. Have you read a book of him like that? Oh, you want to be my enemy? No, I didn't say that. But I, I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to go out and say, I'm part of this little church group. Look, if they don't want us, that's fine. I'm in good company if I stay with the doctrine of the apostles. I bid Harry on and pray. I leave you with 1 Peter. Uh, and I don't know, we might again come back to this next week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Peter, by the authority of God, apostle of Jesus Christ... To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now look at this now. We, we all now looked at the elect. God knows who they are. They know who they are. They received this letter. And let me just say this. Think of yourself. These people were taken out, okay, of their environment. They are dispersed. Uh, the world says we don't want you. The devil says, look, you are struggling. You are struggling because God don't care for you. They say, they, they, there is a gospel out in the world in churches today now. It's your best life now. Because you are God's child, man, it's going to be the best life ever lived. That didn't happen to these people. They were dispersed. They had a hard, tough life. Some of them couldn't even get jobs because they couldn't get a certificate or a permit to do their business if they don't bow to some of these, these places to the Kaiser or Kaiser, and they, they couldn't work. They had hard times. Imagine for yourself a letter comes down, and Peter, the apostle, by the authority of God, says, to you, the elect. Wow, that gives you a lot of confidence, isn't it? I hear people, they say when it goes tough with them, oh, man, it's so tough to hold on to my faith. I go, what's wrong? What's wrong? The devil is bringing you down. You need to know. You're an elect. Who will know? God knows and you know. But look at this now. I'll finish with this. And maybe I'll preach on this next week. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, so, so they are let, sanctification set apart by the Spirit for the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.